Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Oh, good morning, everyone. This is uh, Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God. Uh, today we're going to talk about repenting, which means Hebraically changing from rebellion, which is a popular uh, feeling and uh, sentiment among most people in this world. Uh, we just don't want to do what, what we're told. And disobedience, which again is uh, a popular activity among most human beings on this earth. So before I get into that... Um, there is some significant news uh, in the world right now that's going on. Uh, Abbas, who, if you don't know, he is the um, person who leads the Palestinian Authority organization, and he submitted a document desiring to become an independent uh, state, a Palestinian state. And many people don't understand this, but the land of Jerusalem really is divided already. Uh, there, there's quite a few Palestinians that live there among Jews. And that what they want is a official uh, state so that they can actually um, live side by side with Israel. And, of course, many people who claim to understand the Bible, they, they look at that as a, an official division the division that is talked about uh, in Zechariah 14. And I've, I've done some Bible studies over the past couple of weeks proving that that's not the case. Uh, when, when that division happens, there's uh, certain things that are going to occur. Let's let's look at, again, Zechariah. This is important because I was deceived uh, by this for so many years. And... When I when I find out the truth about something, I, I have a passion to want to reveal it to as many people that want to listen. So anyway, Zechariah chapter 14. I'm not saying that what's going on now won't lead to this division, but it's not the official division that the Bible's talking about here. Uh, Zechariah 14, I'm reading this in the English Standard Version Bible. Um, yeah, Bible. Or... Um, Version, Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. So this day hasn't come yet, but it is coming. When the spoil is taken from you, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. So first of all, there's going to be a division of the spoil, or they're going to take uh, treasures or resources from Jerusalem. So that's going to be divided. 
in the middle, in your midst. For I will gather all the nations, the all the nations of the world, the United Nations, you might as well say, against Jerusalem to battle. So you have one event where there's going to be a spoiling of, of, of Jerusalem, and it's got, that's going to be divided. And then you have all the nations gathering against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. So the entire city is going to be taken, and the houses plundered. All right? So the houses are going to be plundered, and the women are going to be raped. And as I was talking to my wife, and I said, well, do you think when and if the Palestinians are allowed their state that all these things are going to happen? And then it says half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there's going to be people that are going to remain in the city. And then in verse 3, you have this one false minister that we were deceived with for many years. He's preaching that there's a gap between this verse and then verse 3. And I don't see a gap. What I do see is what God says here. Then, at that time, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And then it says, on that particular day, verse 4, on that day, what day? The day that this division occurs. I hope you can see that. I see it very clearly. Do you see it? I mean, it's pretty plain what what it's saying here. So, folks, and this this is actually... If we turn to Revelation chapters, I'm not going to do a thorough Bible study like I have done in the past couple of weeks. I just want to point this out. Yes, this this does have something to do with leading to this event. For all the nations to be gathered against Jerusalem, ultimately, things like this, I'm not surprised, are happening. Where they're desiring a state. All right? that That is definitely going to lead to hostilities and it will lead to all the nations, and I'm, it says all the nations here. All the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. But not every single nation in the world is gathered against Jerusalem right now, folks. I mean, the United States is going to veto that plan. So how can we say that prophecy is being fulfilled? I mean, the United States is not against Israel for them to stand up and say they want to veto. And there's other nations that aren't against Israel. Okay, so... This is a prophecy of the future where all the nations are going to be against Jerusalem. We haven't reached that point yet, if you want to be totally honest with yourself. Anyway, Revelation chapter 16. But this is going to lead to that event, no doubt. All right, Revelation chapter 16. And... As I try to explain to people, if you want to understand prophecy, the judgments of God begin with the seven seals. After the seven seals, there's a verse in the Bible that reveals there's going to be seven angels holding seven trumpets. After the seven trumpet, there's another verse in the Bible that reveals that there's seven angels holding the seven plagues. So everything is in the sequence, STP. I was taught that by a minister a long time ago, and he was right about that. STP, seals, trumpets, and plagues. So anyway, we're at the the, um, the plague part of the judgments of God, Revelation chapter 16. 
And in verse 12, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and that is in the area of Iraq today. And his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east, east of this area. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs or miracles so demons can perform miracles. How else are they going to be able to deceive and trick you? Who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty, or the day of God, or the day of the Lord. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. And this is what he's talking about when he says in the parables he's coming as a thief. He's talking about this event. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So for those who are are, are Awake at this particular period of time. This is not going to shock you and surprise you. But for those who um, aren't awake at this time and haven't repented, he's going to come as a thief. Now, I want you to understand something. Him becoming as a when, when someone comes in the house of the thief, it's sudden, right? You don't plan for it. It's sudden. He goes in and does what he has to do. That's what he's going to do when he lands his feet on the, on the Mount of Olives to all the armies of the world. It's going to appear and seem like he's coming as a thief. That's what he's talking about here. And that's what's going to occur here in the immediate future. Not immediate, but I hope it's immediate. <laughs> but we got a lot of things that happen before this event. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon means Mount Megiddo in Hebrew. In ancient Israel, Megiddo was a plain, not a mountain, but it was also the site of some key battles. So in the symbolic geography of John's vision, it aptly represents the global combat zone in which the final conflict between Christ and the devil will be fought. That is him coming as a thief in the night. And if we turn back to Zechariah chapter 14, What the state of Palestine, if it ever happens, occurs, it's going to lead to the total captivity of Jerusalem. That's what it's going to lead to. And that's what Yeshua stated in Matthew chapter 24. And also, actually in Luke chapter 21, and then in Revelation chapter 11, talks about the Temple Mount being divided, or the outer court given unto the Gentiles. But that's not the division of Jerusalem. That's just the division of the mount. Uh, it, it, it claims that, it states that Jerusalem be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, the whole entire city. So that's the event that we need to be looking for, the total captivity of Jerusalem. Okay, uh, right over here, Zechariah chapter 14. So verse 4, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. 
and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, king of Judah. Then the Lord God will come, and all his holy ones with him, including the saints. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or forest, or frost, rather. There shall be a, this shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Verse 9, and this is not the, the case yet, but it will happen in the future. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. And it says, The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its side from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former grave. Former gate, rather. To the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And then verse 12, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So that's what's going to happen. And many people, I see Jesus said this is nuclear bombs. I don't see anywhere where it said this is nuclear bombs. Anyway, verse 13, and on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah of the Jews will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and garments, in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then, then everyone who survives of all the nations, you got some false preachers saying that the whole world is going to be destroyed and, and no human beings will be left on earth. Well, this scripture uh, rebukes that uh, incorrect uh, reasoning. Verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. I have people telling me the law of Moses is done away with. Well, if that's the case, Mr. Bible expert, then why does God state here that the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths, which is the feast of Sukkot, or for those who want it in clear English, tabernacles, the feast of tabernacles, verse 17, or booths. Now, verse 17, here's the kicker. If any of the families, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So, you know, God knows what gets our attention, our tummies. So what he's going to do is take the rain away. You know, when we don't have food, we have an issue, don't we? Anyway. Because without rain, there's no way any of us would have any food. All the plants would die, all the animals would die. No food. Verse 18, And if the family of Egypt, which is symbolic of the world, does not go up and present themselves. It's interesting, he'll use Egypt as an example too, by the way. 
But anyway, if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And I get some people to, who don't understand the Bible say, well, that shit's feast tabernacle. All right, well, let's understand what Moses said about the feast of tabernacles. It's in Deuteronomy, I think. Now I'm going to use a concordance to find it. Let's see. Deuteronomy chapter 27, I think. One of those chapters. Let me see. Let me look at my concordance here. I know it's in Deuteronomy, so just put your hold your place there. I just want to make a point in reference to what is being said here. The Feast of Booths. There we go. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. Now remember, when he comes back and lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, the nations that do survive, so there will be survivors, despite false, some false ministers teaching the whole world is going to be annihilated and no human humans left on the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And verse 10. Actually, verse 9. Look at the context. Then Moses wrote this law. What law? The the entire five books of the Bible. And gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant, and to all the elders of Israel. Verse 10. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, or Sukkot, when all Israel, and in this case is going to be all the nation, not just all Israel, okay, to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, which is Jerusalem, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Okay? So this law is not going to be done away with either. If he's going to require all the nations to to worship him every year, then every seventh year, the whole, the whole entire law is going to be read to them, to all the nations of the world, not just to, to Israel, all right? And it says right here, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. What's the fear of God? Uh, to hate evil, Proverbs 8, verse 13, and be careful to do all the words of this law. All the words of the law. I, I'm emailing back and forth with a gentleman. He seems to be sincere, and he doesn't seem to understand uh, that the law of Moses is the law of God. And this one verse here should help him understand. It's saying, be careful to do all the words of the law, all the words of the law, and that your children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to Jordan to possess. All right, so let's understand this. This is not a proof for those who don't understand the law of Moses, the law of God. Uh, when, when Messiah comes back, he's going to require all nations that survive to worship him every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. And every seven years, the whole law is going to be read to them. 
Now, if it wasn't meant for them, they, he would say, okay, well, let's have all the nations leave, and we'll just have the Israelites stay, and they just live to the law. That, that, that's not going to happen, folks. That's not going to happen. So that, that's another way that you can actually understand. And then here, here's another one, too. Well, it states in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes that the whole duty of man is to keep the commandments of God, and Jews have always understood the commandments of God to be all the law of the Torah. It's not just the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it states this. In verse 26, it says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform, does not confirm the words of, the, of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So you're not going to get blessed by not keeping the entire Torah of God to the best of your ability from what you know. That's what he's saying. So anyway, let's let's keep keep a a real keen eye on what's going on in Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, what's going on here is going to lead to that great event. It's going to lead, first of all, to in the entire city of Jerusalem taking over. As let's look at Luke chapter twenty-one. Luke chapter twenty-one again. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. All right? Now, in Matthew 24, verse 15, he states the abomination of desolation. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, it doesn't say the, the, the whole world's armies. It just says armies surrounding Jerusalem. Then you know its desolation has come near. But it hasn't come yet, but it's near. Okay, and then verse 21, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter. So you don't don't wait until uh, the Antimessiah goes in the temple and claims he's God. I mean, you don't wait to that point. What you should do, when you see these armies surrounding Jerusalem, you see on CNN or whatever, uh, we got these armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that the desolation is near. All right? And of course, at that time, the temple must be built. If, if the temple is built and you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, you need to get to, uh, I, I mentioned to you, uh, I think a few times, that you should get this book called Strategic Relocation. Strategic Relocation. Again, Strategic Relocation. Type that in Google and get that book like your life depended on it. Okay? Because it could. And you need to read that book and find out where the safest areas of where you are located are. And you prepare to go to that safe location. Because we're not in Judea. I'm not in Judea. I'm not in the West Bank. But let's use a little wisdom. If he's telling those who are in Judea to flee to the mountains, then we need to flee to the nearest mountains of where we're living at. Let's just use a little common sense. And said, so let those who are inside the city of Jerusalem depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. So you need to get away from metropolitan areas and anywhere, in any place that you are in the world. He's using Jerusalem as a model to follow. You need to, to get out of the city of where you're at and go to the wilderness and the mountains. Even in Revelation chapter 12, it states that the assembly will be taken into the wilderness. Okay, so the wilderness and the mountainous areas, that's where we need to go to. All right, 
verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So what event needs are, are we waiting for? Not the division of Jerusalem right now. What we're look, waiting for is, number one, the temple to be built. But prior to that, there's going to be a war, a war that will influence the Jews to do that. Some kind of disturbance in the world. There's already wars, but it's gonna. It, it looks like it's going to be a major war that will influence the Jews to do what they should do. Throughout history, that's been the pattern. That the Jews or any other human being doesn't seem to be motivated to really follow through on what God says unless he causes a dramatic event to occur. And that's what's going to happen again. That's just the way we are. We're not proactive. We are reactive in most cases. Proactive meaning that you plan for contingencies. You plan for uh, disturbances. You plan for problems. And you plan to have solutions to those problems. Most human beings are reactive. They wait till something happens, then they try to do something about it. And you don't want to be that way. Uh, but anyway, verse 22, For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem, the entire city, doesn't say half the city, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? So let's, I'm going to just try to, probably every program, perhaps I'll, I'll go over this, uh, to, to show you what you need to be looking at. There's going to be a major war that's going to occur that's going to influence the Jews to build the temple. It's going to be some kind of disturbance, something to wake them up to reality and say, hey, we need to build this temple. And that temple will be built. For those who don't believe me, think I don't know what I'm talking about, go to www.templeinstitute.org. That's www.templeinstitute.org. And you can see that the plans of the temple have already been planned. Okay, so it's going to be built. Let's turn to Revelation. Revelation. I don't hear many ministers focusing on this, uh, so-called Torah teachers and men. I don't, I don't see them focusing on the temple being built. And I'm going to focus on it because that's what Torah teachers should be doing right now. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So this is a prophecy from the Apostle John is telling you that there will be a temple because the Re book of Revelation really is prophecy for the 21st century. That's what it is, all right? This prophecy that was closed and sealed until this century. The book is now open if you really want to understand it. And those who, like myself, understand the book of Revelation are qualified to teach you what it says. Uh, and it's open to you that way. It can be all, also open to you if you ask God, get on your knees and pray and ask for wisdom. He'll pour out his Holy Spirit and he'll reveal the book of Revelation to you. But this book is no longer sealed. It's open for you to understand. So Revelation 11, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. I explained to you that this is similar to the phraseology in Ezekiel chapter 40, about, uh, chapter 40 about measuring the temple. That means that the temple is going to be built, that it will be built and be constructed. All right? 
but do not measure the court outside the temple. That is the court of the Gentiles. Leave out, for it is given unto the nations that they will trample the holy city, the entire city, for 42 months. So the, for three and a half years, the entire city of Jerusalem will be taken uh, by force. Not divided, but taken by force. That division is going to occur, that official division that's going to lead to Yeshua coming back. Who knows? There may be some kind of official division, but it's not going to be the division that's talked about in Zechariah chapter 14 and in other places in, in the Bible. That's going to lead to Yeshua. I'm concerned about the division that's going to lead uh, Yeshua, lead to Yeshua coming back immediately like a thief in the night. I'm not concerned about some superficial or uh, that, you know, superficial means it doesn't really have that much uh, value. Uh, any, some superficial division that's not going to lead to his overall return in, a, in, in an immediate way like he's a thief in the night. I hope I'm explaining this, explaining this to you in a clear fashion because I'm, I'm trying to do that. All right. So anyway, in Revelation 11, verse 1 tells you that there will be a temple built. And Christ tells you that in Acts. He wants you to think here, okay? Let's use our brain and think. That's why he tells us to go to Daniel. Daniel is talking about the temple, okay? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. Uh, and then Matthew chapter uh, 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation force, you're going to see armies surround Jerusalem. And then you're going to see the, and see, but that's that, when we see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, and we know the temple's built, that's the time to flee, folks. You don't wait until uh, the anti-Messiah goes into the temple and with his statue and say he's God, you know, and, and then leave. It's going to be too late. You need, when, that, when those armies surround Jerusalem, when you see on CNN or whatever that the armies are surround Jerusalem, it's time to go. Get in your car, do what you ever got to do, have your escape route planned ahead of time, and do what you need to do. And God has promised to protect you if you do that. Uh, for those who believe in the false rapture theory, you're not going to be raptured up to heaven while everybody else suffers. That's not going to happen, folks. You need to get real. That's not what religion's about, saving your behind. Okay? It's about saving your behind and other people's behinds. That's what religion is about. And you must be willing to take up your cross and sacrifice your life if you must. The the key thing is your eternal salvation, not your physical preservation. Okay? That's what you need to be focusing on. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination and desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, or the holy place is either that, that place where the priests gather together and, uh, to do their work, or it can be the Holy of Holies. I'm still doing a Bible and trying to figure out which all indications could be. He could have been referring to the Holy of Holies as well. But I know it's one of the holy places. Either the, the Holy of Holies where the, the Ark of the Covenant is located or the, the place behind the temp, uh, behind the curtain where uh, the priests do their work because the holy place is separated into two. The uh, overall holy places, there's two of them. There's the Holy of Holies and then you have the holy place. So anyway... Says, let the reader understand, and let those who are in the West Bank or Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And for Elias, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Shabbat. For then 
there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, no ever shall be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. All right? But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. So he says here, verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there it is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise. We had this one false minister saying that Christ um, showed up at a court case. So, you know, that's ridiculous things that, that's the falls along the lines of the ridiculous things that he's saying here that you don't need to listen to. Um, so as to lead astray of possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and it shines as far as the west, so would a coming. And I was trying to explain this individual. Hopefully he's listening. Um, this is referring to his second coming. It's not referring to him being resurrected and proving to to everyone that he taught that believed in him that he has been resurrected. And it's a, it's a confirmation of the scriptures. He's not talking about that coming. He's talking about the coming of the Son of Man, the official coming of the Son of Man, when he lands his feet on, on, an, on the Mount of Olives with the angels and the saints, and then um, he and the armies destroy all the nations of the world that oppose his rule. That's what it's talking about. That's the coming of the Son of Man. Also the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Messiah. Son of Man is just an idiom for the Messiah. Um, he will uh, initiate peace upon the earth. That's the coming that he's talking about, where all the nations of the world will see him. And then verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's referring to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, when you read toward the latter half of that, it's talking about all the, the vultures eating up all the dead bodies. And then Zechariah chapter 14 it will be a contributor to that because it talks about the armies being dissolved, their flesh being dissolved off their bodies because of the brightness of his coming. Uh, there is a scripture in, Zechariah, in uh, Thessalonians that alludes to that. Let's turn there. It says that the Antimessiah will be destroyed from the brightness of his coming. First, Thessalonians, I think, or second, I think it's Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Uh, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So and it's going to be a melting there, and he's, he's going to uh, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then, of course, the, the, the Bible reveals that he's going to be burnt up anyway. He's going to take him and toss him in the lake of fire. So anyway, the brightness of his coming will have something to do with people being destroyed, too. That's the point I'm trying to make here. So... So uh, we, we have to understand that, and um, we have to, to understand that the things we need to be looking at is uh, a major world war that will lead to uh, Jerusalem, the temple being built, 
or a, a major war. Uh, it appears that when Christ said nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, uh, that's families rising against families and neighbors rising against neighbors and then nations or kingdoms rising against kingdoms. This is before the abomination or the temple built. So we know that's going to happen. That sounds to me like a world war that's going to occur. Then once that happens and the temple is going to be built, I hope that it doesn't take a war for the temple to be built, but in all likelihood that's probably what's going to happen. In either case, the temple is going to be built. And and then what's going to occur is the stoppage of sacrifices on the temple. And then that's when the armies will surround Jerusalem, or the armies will probably surround Jerusalem at the time when the sacrifices are stopped, and then that's the time to flee at that particular period of time. Actually, when you see the army surround Jerusalem, and and you know, and the temple's there. That's the time to flee, according to Yeshua's words. Okay, so I hope I've, I've covered that and helped you to understand what you really need to be looking for, based on what Yeshua said, not what some minister thinks he says. Okay, uh, let's go over the um, Torah readings here. I'm gonna try to summarize it here um, as best I can here. And the, the title of this Bible study is Repenting from Rebellion and Disobedience. So let me uh, go to Chabad here. It's a website that I use. It's very helpful in summarizing these Torah readings. It's chabad.org. For those who want to get a Jewish perspective on the Tanakh and the Old Testament, of course, we know Jews don't believe in the um, the New Testament or the Apostolic Scriptures, but they are very wise when it comes to uh, understanding the Old Testament or the Tanakh, and they're only half-blinded. So that means that there is some value in their teachings. They're not fully blinded. So anyway, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9 to... Deuteronomy 31, verse 30, we may read certain parts of this as well. The Parsha, or Bible section of Nezavim, includes some of the most fundamental principles of the Jewish faith, or, to correct that statement, uh, believer's faith. The unity of Israel. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your heads, your tribes, your elders, your officers, and every Israelite man, your young ones. See, notice the hierarchy here. I don't think people really understand. They're wondering whether or not women should rule over men or men should rule over women. Uh, here's a hierarchy here. It says, every Israelite man, your young ones, your wives, the stranger in your gate, from your wood hewer to your water drawer. All right, so again, it talks about a man first. You know, and I mean, women may frown and all that about that. Well, look, there's only been one judge ever in the history of the Bible that was... Um, Deborah, and it was a reason why God used her is because there were no men at the time. Uh, the men were acting cowardly. As an example of uh, Barak, he wanted her to, to go into battle with him, and it's nowhere in the Bible based on the law of war in Deuteronomy, I think it's uh, chapter 20, that it states that a woman is qualified to go to war. Okay? Uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says a woman should go to war. That's something that a woman is not <laughs> has not been created to do to go fight 
in wars. Okay, that's 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 nowhere in the Bible. So anyway, the future redemption. Moses warns of the exile and desolation of the land that will result if Israel abandons laws. But then he prophesies that in the end, you will return to the Lord your God if your outcast shall be at the ends of the heaven. From there will the Lord your God gather you and bring you into the land which your fathers have possessed. The practicality of Torah. For the mitzvah, which is uh, Hebrew for commandment, which I command you this day, it is not beyond you, nor is it remote from you. It is not in heaven. It is not across the sea. Rather, it is very close to you in your mouth and your heart that you may do it. I was listening to a friend of mine's uh, Bible study. He makes a good point. Why would God tell you to keep something that you can't keep? It doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> Why would a father tell a son, I mean a righteous father, and maybe wicked fathers do this, uh, but a righteous father would never tell his son to do something that he knows his son can't do. I mean, that's kind of stupid. So anyway, um, freedom of, it's not kind of, it is stupid. Anyway, freedom of choice. I have set before you life and goodness and death and evil, in that I command you this day to love God, to walk in his ways, not your ways, his ways, and to keep his commandments. Life and death I have set before you, Blessing and curse, that's a dichotomy. Blessing or curse. And you shall choose life. That's what he wants you to do, is choose life. The Parsha of, or the uh, Torah portion or scripture portion of Vayulek, and he went, recounts the events of Moses' last day of earthly life. I am 120 years old today, he says to the people. So he was 120 years old. Amazing. I am 120 years old, he says to the people, and I can no longer go forth and come in. He transfers the leadership to Joshua. Leadership. Here we go again. Leadership. And writes, uh, concludes writing. There's leadership always, folks. There will always be leadership. There will always be um, uh, a, a, a case for leadership. There's always a necessity for leaders. That's what I was trying to say. So he transferred the leadership to Joshua and writes or concludes writing the Torah in a scroll. Torah means the teachings of God. In a scroll which he entrusts to the Levites for safekeeping in the Ark of the Covenant. So he writes the Torah in a scroll. And he entrusted to the Levites for safekeeping in the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Agreement to keep the laws or the commandments or mitzvah of God. The mitzvah of Hel or gather is given every seven years during the festival of Sukkot. I just talked about that. Of the first year of the Shemata cycle, the entire people of Israel or the Shemata cycle, men, women, and children should gather at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem where the king should read to them from the Torah. Valahek, or Vayalek concludes with the prediction that the people of Israel would turn away from their covenant with God. Yes, they have. Causing him to hide his face from them, but also with the promise that the words of the Torah shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their descendants. And that is a prophecy that's being fulfilled. It's, it's not going to be forgotten. And that's going to cause most of Israel to be saved. That's 
revealed in Revelation, uh, not Revelation, but Romans, yeah, Revelation 2, but Romans chapter 11. All right, so that's the summary of that Torah portion. And let's uh, look at the uh, Torah section here. And this uh, this is Isaiah 61, starting in verse 10 to Isaiah 63, verse 9. It says, this week's Torah is the seventh and final installment of a series of seven Torah of Consolation. These seven Torah or Haftarot, rather, commence on the Shabbat following, or begin following Shabbat from Tish above, and continue until Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, the uh, Yom Torah. The prophet begins on a high note, describing the great joy that we, as a matter of fact, uh, that day will be celebrated by me, because I go by the new moon calendar. I know those to uh, go by the Jewish calendar, they're going to celebrate it on Thursday and Friday. I'm going to celebrate it on uh, Friday. Anyway, Isaiah says, The prophet begins on a high note, describing the great joy that we will experience with the final redemption, comparing it to the joy of a newly married couple. Isaiah then, that's interesting too, by the way. Isaiah then declares his refusal to passively await the redemption. For Zion's sake is the name for Jerusalem. I will not remain silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be still until her righteousness emerges like shining light. He implores the stones of Jerusalem not to be silent day or night until God restores Jerusalem and re- establishes it in his glory. And that's what's going to happen. Jerusalem will be restored. The Hatar then recounts God's oath to eventually redeem Zion when the Jews will praise God in Jerusalem. The Hatar also contains a description of the punishment God will mete out to Edom, which is uh, in prophecy and symbolic not only of the area of, of Edom, the, uh, the, the Turkey uh, people, but also is symbolic of, of anyone that is uh, against God and the enemies of Israel. Isaiah concludes with the famous statement, In all Israel's affliction, he too is afflicted, and the angel of his presence redeemed him. Like a loving father who shares the pain of his child, God too shares the pain of his people and a waste of redemption along with them. Okay, so that's what this is all about. These, these uh, Torah portions help us prepare for these holy days that we're going to celebrate for those who desire to want to celebrate them. So it's very important to to understand that. So going back to the Torah portion here of Deuteronomy, I want to read certain sections here so that we understand uh, what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Verse 1 says, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them in Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine. 
or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came out to this place, Sion, the king of Hezbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the, Man 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 uh, the Manassites, of the Manassites, right? Therefore, keep the words of the covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And see, that's the key, folks, to keep the words so that you can prosper in all that you do. And in verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, this is in reference to repenting. And I want to need to focus on that because that's very important, repenting from rebellion and, and disobedience. Verse 1, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I set before you, and you called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So he says he's going to have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's what circumcision really represents, uh, circumcising your heart and, and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart of all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. What curses? The curses he talked about in Deuteronomy 28. Verse 8. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of this law, which is the law of Moses. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear or understand, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he, not money or gold or silver, is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So 
So this is very important to understand here. In verse 16, you know, God knew that (laughs) he prophesied to Moses that the people, his wife, symbolically would have rebelled against him. And Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant or his agreement to keep the commandments that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. For those who think that anger cannot be righteous, it is. Uh, in this case, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come unto them, come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned other gods. And that's what happens, folks, when you don't want to obey God, you want to do your own thing, you don't care about what he says, then he's not going to be around, folks. He's not going to be around. You may deceive yourself into thinking he's around you, but he, but he's not. If you don't consistently, I'm not talking about the occasional slip-up, but if you don't consistently want to desire to obey God, he's not going to be around you. The devil will be around you, though, but he won't. God won't. Verse 19, now therefore write this song, and most, most people don't understand what this song This is a great prophecy that uh, I'll go over next week. Uh, it says here, In verse 19, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and let me explain again that Israel is not just the Jews, folks. It's, it's the United States, Britain, Canada, the countries in Northwestern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, and any, and of course any, uh, most Christians are, are Israel. And, of course, Jews are. So um, that's what you need to understand about about that, about when it says Israel. And for proof of that, go to www.britam, B as in boy, R-I-T-A-M, as in mother.org. That's www.b as in boy, R-I-T-A-M.org to review Yara Davidi's comprehensive website on this. Okay. So in verse, in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verse 19, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness against me, against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and here we go, here's the American problem. <laughs> and they have eaten and are full and grown fat. Grown fat. We got fat all over the place among our peoples. Sixty percent of people in this country are overweight. And we are rich. So who are the richest and the fattest people in the world? Come on. I mean, if you have any sense at all, you would understand that it's the American peoples. That is one of the characteristics of the people of Israel, folks. We got plenty, and we're fat, overweight. So anyway, 
In verse 20, for when I had brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods. And that's what happens when you are full and grown fat. Fat, obesity is a disease, folks. None of us should be overweight. When you're overweight, it causes chemical imbalance of the body. It causes you not to think straight. It causes you not to do a lot of things that you should be doing. And God knows that. That's why he says here, they have eaten and are full and grown fat. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them. And other gods is not just a statue kneeling to it. It's also anything you, that you take that's more important than God. That's a god too. And that's what he's talking about as well. And serve them and despise me and break my covenant. So let's let's I want to focus on this scripture. So eating, being lazy, because when you when you when you're overweight, and 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 all of us have been guilty of this. Uh, very few people have not. It's a form of laziness. Laziness, not wanting to do what you need to do to take care of your body, and that's a sin to not take care of your body. And and Americans are more guilty of this than probably any people in the world. We're lazy. We have our TVs. We. We we waste our time looking at television. You don't believe me? Look at the average time an American looks at television. Just Google that, and you'll get a, get you get an answer. It's about at least five or six hours, between five and six hours a day, that we look at television. That's the reason why many of us are overweight. That's the sin of Sodom. And they have. Eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Being lazy, having a problem eating, will cause you to break God's covenant, folks. Not keep it fully. You may keep some parts that are convenient for you, but other parts you don't. Like one of the one of one of his commandments, one of his teachings is not to to overeat, to to, to be a glutton. Now you, 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 there's, there's a scripture that talks about a rebellious son being a glutton. Okay, eating too much. That's a sin to do that. And I don't think people in this country especially take that seriously. Verse 21. You know, the, what's the leading cause of death in this country? Does any of you know that? Heart disease. And why is heart disease the number one cause of death in this country? Because we eat too much meat. And then we eat unclean meat, pork, which has fat in it. And it and it clogs your veins to the point of where you need to have triple bypass surgery or other other these heart uh, surgeries to to go into your heart, which is unnatural, to, to go and open up some a body and and do all these things. I'm not saying that surgery is is evil in itself. I'm just saying that that particular surgery can be avoided by eating the right foods. But anyway. For those who care to know what God says about which foods you should eat that that are proper, then you need to, to study Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And, and for those who say, well, yeah, that didn't exist, and uh, that's for the Jews, well, you go go to Noah's, uh, the incident with Noah when he came out of the, well, actually before he came out of the flood, and I think it's in Genesis 6, when he tells Noah to gather all the unclean and clean animals. Okay, so obviously, even back then, God knew uh, which animals were clean to eat and which ones were unclean. All right? So anyway, verse 21 of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. And when many evils 
And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Now, obviously, this is a prophecy of the future, because their offspring did forget this song. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. They, uh, In other words, back then. Before I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Verse 23 and the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous. What is courageous, folks? Is doing what you need to do, knowing that you may get harmed or murdered or, or killed, but you do the right thing. That's being courageous. Doing the right thing, knowing that some harm may come to you. That's what being courageous is all about. And he tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. For men and women, you have to be courageous to make it in, in the kingdom of God. If you're not courageous, you're not going to be make, you're not going to make it at all. Being a coward is the opposite of being courageous. Verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, the words of this law is the first five books of the Bible, not just the Ten Commandments. Verse 25, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the covenant of the Lord your God. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant are the two tablets of stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own fingers. So that is inside the Ark of the Covenant. But on the side of the covenant is the rest of the words of God that, remember, in Exodus chapter 20, the people did not want to hear out of God's own mouth because they were afraid that God would destroy them. So he said, don't, don't, don't let God talk to us. And that's the reason why those words weren't on stone, probably, that they, he gave those words to Moses to write in a book, because they didn't want God to talk the rest of the words to them, because they were afraid of God. They studied that in Exodus chapter 20. I don't think too many people realize that, because they're too busy looking at this stupid uh, Moses movie, that was created with, uh, what's his name? What's the guy's name? That played in Planet of the Apes? Not Charlton Heston, yeah. yeah. And they, and they think that's the official canon of how God used Moses and raised him up to do what he did, and it's not. We, we, we're, too, we, we're too much dependent on these stupid movies. And I'm telling you, most movies are not based on the books that are written about the movies. They change things. Anyway, verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded to the, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. So if the words of the, of the, the, the law of Moses had nothing to do with the law of God, why would it be put right next to the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments? that are written in stone inside it. Come on, let's use you for common sense here, okay? This symbolic, this symbolism of the book of the law, the law of Moses being put next to the Ark of the Covenant proves that that should be kept too. That's why you need to understand and study temple architecture. Put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord your God, and that it may be here for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. 
We are rebellious and stubborn folks. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it our way. Behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? And that's a prophecy because they have been Jews and Gentiles alike. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. This is Moses talking to the people. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger through what? The works of, or the work of your hands. So we will get into this song of Moses in a little more detail next week, okay? But uh, I just wanted to go over a little bit of Deuteronomy because I really believe it's very significant that we do. Deuteronomy is a very good book to study in terms of should we keep the law and why should we keep the law. All right, so I want to go over a little bit today about the significance of the Messiah being sacrificed as a lamb. And I don't think people really understand that like they should. So I'm going to read over Hebrews chapter 9 in the complete Jewish Bible version because most English versions, they just totally don't understand uh, the significance of this event. So I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible for clarity's sake here. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had both regulations for worship and a holy place here on the earth. The first covenant, that's the agreement to keep the commandments. It's not talking about the law of God. Okay, It's talking about the first agreement to keep the law. That's what the first covenant is. Verse 2. A tent was set up, the outer one, which was called the holy place. In it were the menorah. The menorah is, is a seven lamp. Um, yes, yeah, seven lamps. And all wrapped up into one. You can just type in menorah, M-E-N-O-R-A-H on Google, and, and click on image and you'll be able to see what the menorah looks like. The table and the bread of presence behind the second parakeet was a tent called the holiest place. So you had, it's like I described to you earlier, you have the holy place and then you have the holy of holies. And the holy place was the menorah, the table, and the bread of presence. Verse 4, which had the golden altar for burning incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. And you have some folks saying, well, uh, they're saying that in the holy place, the holy of holies was the golden altar for burning incense and all that. It was outside the, it was right by the curtain. And uh, I'm going to read to you if I can find it here. Could you get that uh, Jewish commentary for me, please? Because people trip up on this. I know there's a popular Torah teacher teaching that the book of Hebrews is not inspired scripture. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I'm just you know, telling you out front. And uh, it's a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of um, inspiration and instruction in the book of Hebrews that we need to pay attention to. In Hebrews 9, verse 4, and uh, which had the golden altar for burning incense, and that's the devil working through folks like that to discourage you from understanding the book of Hebrews, which when you really understand it, you'll understand the sacrifice of the Messiah, and you'll understand that, that, that the, um, the, the sacrifices haven't been done away with. All right? Uh, which had the golden altar for burning incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. In the Ark was the gold jar containing the man, Aaron's rod that sprouted, and the, and the, and the stone tablets of the covenant. All right, so let me stop there and read to you what someone who does know what he's talking about and who is a Jew um, says in verse 4 here. Uh, and this is in the uh, Jewish New Testament commentary by Mr. David Stern. Very wise man. Hebrews 9, verse 4. The holiest place had associated with itself the golden altar for burning incense. Critics, like uh, a popular Torah teacher, have been quick to conclude that the author did not know what he was talking about. Since the Torah clearly states that the golden altar was outside the curtain. This is in Exodus 30, verse 6. Leviticus 16, verse 18, and 1 Kings 6, verse 22. Actually, the author knew his subject well. Although the incense altar was used daily for other purposes, it was used in a special way by the Kohen Haggadah on Yom Kippur. So what he's picturing here is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When he would take from it a golden censer of coals and bring it into the holy holiest place. And this is found in Exodus 30, verse 10. Leviticus 16, verse 12 to 15. Inside the holiest place was the Ark of the Covenant, described first at Exodus 25, verse 10 to 22. The box in which were the gold jar containing a sample of the manna on which the Israelites lived for 40 years in the wilderness, Exodus 16, verse 33. Aaron's rod, the dry almond branch that sprouted overnight as a sign to Korak and his rebels that Moses and Aaron were God's authorized representatives and also represents to us that God will always have people to teach the commandments. During the millennium there will be priests and they will be teaching the law of God. You're never going to get away from teachers, folks. So stop trying to run them from it. And the second set of stone tablets of the covenant that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai which were in Solomon's temple but disappeared later, perhaps at the time of the Babylonian exile, 587 CE. Earlier in verse 2, the Greek text says that the table was showbread and the menorah were in the holy place. And in the latter part of the present verse, the Greek says that the manna, rod, and tablets were in the ark. But the Greek expression for the relationship between the holiest place and the incense altar is not in which, but having, having associated with itself. Like the ark, the incense altar was associated with the holiest place. But the author did not make the mistake of locating the incense altar in the holiest place, which would have been an error. On the contrary, choosing his words carefully, he associated the incense altar with the holiest place. Association doesn't mean that it's in, and that's what he's saying there, even though it was outside. A diagram of the actual locations makes this even clearer. The figure shows that the incense altar was close to the holiest place, while the menorah, the showbread, and table were far away. So 
uh, I'll just describe this illustration. You have at the bottom the menorah, the showbread and table, and you have the holiest place. Then you have the incense altar. And the incense altar is right before the veil where the high priest every year, once a year, entered into the Holy of Holies with the the um, the incense. So that's what this picture is here, this diagram. I, I, I highly suggest that you get the Jewish New Testament commentary by David Stern. Everything in here is not right, but a lot of things are. And the guy has really done a thorough research. And this will really give you and help you understand the Hebraic understanding of the Bible without knowing Hebrew. There's not a requirement to know Hebrew to understand the Bible. It helps you understand it better. But the next best thing is to to get a commentary from a Messianic Jew. A Messianic Jew is someone who actually believes that Yeshua is the Messiah and they're a Jew. And this guy has a doctorate degree, not in theology, but he has a doctorate degree nonetheless. He's very intelligent, and he shows that. And this Jewish New Testament commentary will be a blessing to you and help you understand the Bible in a way you never have before. It certainly has helped me. And this, I tell you, this commentary that I have, it's, it's, it's definitely worked. <laughs> I mean, I've looked at it many times, and I wish he would come up with a, uh Old Testament commentary. Uh, I have to rely on uh, rabbis for that. But it would be great to get an Old Testament commentary uh, from someone who is a Messianic Jew. I think the closest that I have, I have uh, uh, something that was written by a Messianic Jew, but it just goes over the history of the the Old Testament. It's not a commentary, so to speak. And so what I use, uh, in most cases I use uh, Rashi, I have the complete Tanakh by Rashi, one of the greatest Torah scholars of all time, Tanakh scholars of all time. And I'm very careful when I read his information because, of course, he didn't believe the Messiah is Jesus. So uh, I'm very careful. And then also I have, and he goes over the entire Tanakh, but a rival of his, uh, Ramban, uh, I have his commentary of, the first five books of the Bible. So I highly suggest you get that as well. And that'll give you all, it gives you foundation there to get the Jewish background of the Bible. And what does the Bible say about, uh, then you also have a JPS commentary, which I have through uh, the software program that I have uh, through Logos Software. But I have all the tools that I need to really uh, teach people. And a, and a true scribe is, is someone who is trained in the law of Moses. And that's another proof that uh, the law cannot be done away with, folks. Uh, a true scribe, let's look at Ezekiel, no, yeah, Ezekiel, or Ezra, rather, chapter, uh, I think it's Ezra chapter 7. Let's see. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. Um, I'm just going to quote the scripture if I can find it here. Yeah, let me just type in Law of Moses phrase, and I'll be able to find it here quickly. So anyway, Hebrews chapter 9 kind of explains you the, the temple and what's in the temple. So it's, 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 a, it's a great summary of that. If I don't have enough time today, folks, I'm going to go over this next week because it's important. You need to understand the temple, its significance and, and for for today and for the future.
Ezra 7, verse 6. It says, and This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. That's a scribe. Now, Christ stated that he would send scribes. Okay, he would send scribes to the people. And, again... Turn to Matthew chapter 23 for that scripture. Okay, Matthew chapter 23. I read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for ter- uh, for clarity's sake. It says... Matthew 23, verse 34, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. And that's scribes. And, and, and I'll go back to the King James Version. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, scribes, uh, we, we go through a lot. You know, uh, people just don't like that law of Moses, uh, you know, unfortunately. And... Uh, we have to go through a lot of persecutions, as he predicted here. And that's unfortunate, but uh, that's what we have to go through. And uh, let me see. There's another parallel scripture here that I want to go to. All right. But right here, Yeshua states that he would send scribes. And, you know, we know what scribes are. They are trained in the law of Moses. And this is a commentary from Gill here, and it makes sense what he's saying here, John Gill. He says, the persons designed by prophets, wise men, and scribes are his apostles called prophets because they were divinely inspired to write and preach in, in his name, had the gift of foretelling future events, and of explaining with the greatest clearness and exactness the prophecies of the Old Testament showing their respect unto and accomplishing Christ. Wise men, because they were made wise unto salvation and capable of instructing others, they were filled with all spiritual and evangelical wisdom and preached the wisdom of God in the mystery, even the hidden wisdom and scribes, because they were all well instructed in the kingdom of heaven and had the true knowledge of the law and could rightly interpret it as well as make known the gospel of the grace of God. So this is referring a scribe, ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying to explain to you, is someone that's thoroughly versed in the law of Moses. Okay, so for people who think they are ministers and a scribe, uh, let's understand what that means. Okay, a scribe is a writer, a professional writer or a writer, someone who could read and write and convey words in a way to instruct people. Not everybody has that ability. You can learn how to have that ability, but, you know, some people have a special gift. Of, of writing, and and that's the characteristics of someone who is a scribe, someone who can write and convey their, their message in a way that is teachable and learnable. And someone who's thoroughly versed in the law of Moses, that is a scribe, according to the Bible's definition. So anyway, getting back to... got nine minutes left. Getting back to... 
Hebrews chapter 9. Let's go back there. I'm reading this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. And to get the Hebraic background. And in verse 5, above it were the Kurvim. And let me go back to his commentary here. Yeah, Kurvim, that means cherubim. But that in the Hebrew is cherubim. That means the uh, the uh, angels that are called cherubim. Okay, so and above it were cherubim representing the Shekinah. That's the the glory of God casting their shadow on the lid of the ark. But now is not the time to discuss these things in detail. With things so arranged, the kohanim or the priests go into the outer tent all the time to discharge their duties. But only the kohen Haggadol enters the inner one. And he goes in only once a year. So that proves to you what the context of this is. It's talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year. Okay? And he goes in only once a year, and he must always bring blood, which he offers both for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. And by this arrangement, the Ra HaKadish, or the Holy Spirit, showed that so long as the first tent had standing, the way in the holiest place was closed. And see, here's the issue. The holiest place represents where God dwells. It represents his throne room. Okay? That's what the holiest place represents. But it was closed. God never meant to close. And I'm going to write this article about the reality of heaven because people just don't understand the reality of it. But but God never wanted to close access to where he lives at, where he rules. Okay? That was never the intention for him to do that. But that's what sin caused. Verse 9, this symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be bought to the goal by the gifts and sacrifices he offers. Okay? So the holy place represents the old covenant, or the not the old, not the commandments, but the agreement to keep the commandments. The old agreement, which is fading away, according to the scriptures. That agreement was made with the nation of Israel to keep that law. All right, But the people rebelled, as I explained to you, so they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Hebrews what 5 verse 32 states plainly that he only gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Verse 10, and that's what he's talking about here that all the, 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 the blood sacrifices and gifts did not take away sin, did not permanently remove it so that you would not sin anymore because you need the Holy Spirit for that. Remember, the Ten Commandments is written on stone. The new agreement to keep the commandments, God is going to help you more by writing those Ten Commandments and all the rest of them on your heart. Okay, The holy place represents the agreement to keep the commandments written in stone. The holiest place represents the agreement to keep the commandments written on your heart. That's the dichotomy that is being revealed here in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 9. This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the continent is the present age. And we're all humans and, you know, we, we're all struggling here. And the majority of people on the earth don't have the Holy Spirit. 
and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be brought to the goal by the gift. What's the goal? The goal is not to sin anymore. Uh, by the gifts and sacrifices he offers, verse 10, for they involve only food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations concerning the outward life, imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure. Verse 11, but when the Messiah appeared as Cohen, Godot, of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, it is not of this created world, he entered the holiest place, where God dwells, once and for all, and he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus setting people free forever. Free from what? Free from eternal death if you obey God. Verse 13, For if sprinkling ceremonial unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer restores their outward purity, and that's what the purpose was, is to do the outward purity, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death. And then the King James Version says dead works. Okay? So that's what the Messiah of Christ did or should have done. Uh, to those, and the reason why I say should have done is, is that's to those people who still refuse and want to obey him. Uh, his sacrifice will purify our minds or conscience from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. And that's one of the first doctrines of God in Hebrews 6, verse 1, repentance from dead works, which many people, unfortunately, do. They have dead works. You have people that say that they're going to give money to someone and they don't do it. Uh, you know, that that's an example of dead works. I mean, that's that's the kind of works that God hates. You don't tell people you're going to do something and then you don't do it. That's a great sin, whether it's money or anything else. You don't do that. So, um, verse 15. It is because of the death that he is, it is because of this death that he is mediator of a new covenant or new agreement because a death has occurred which sets people free from the transgressions committed under the first agreement or covenant. Covenant means agreement. Those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Okay? Verse 16, for where there is a will, there must necessarily be produced evidence of his maker's death. Okay, I don't have too much time here, so let me try to sum this up here. Verse 17, since a will goes into effect only upon death, it never has force while his maker is still alive. This is why the first agreement, or covenant too, was inaugurated with blood. After Moses had, or Moses had proclaimed every command of the Torah to all the people. He took the blood of the calves with some water and used scarlet wool and hyssop to sprinkle both the scroll itself and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has ordained for you. This, he took his commandment so seriously that uh, he wanted to seal it with blood, which represents your life, right? Verse 21. Likewise, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the things used in his ceremonies. In fact, according to the Torah, Almost everything is purified with blood. Indeed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, despite what Jews preach otherwise. Verse 23. Now, this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified, but the heavenly things themselves require better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For the Messiah has entered a holiest place, which is not man-made and merely a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself in order to appear now on our behalf in the presence of God. Further, he did not enter heaven to offer himself over and over again, like the Kohen Haggadol, who 
uh, enters the holiest place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer death many times from the founding of the universe on. But as it is, is, he has appeared once at the end of the ages in order to do away with the sin through the sacrifice of himself, just as human beings have to die once, but after this comes the judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him. So that this chapter reveals his work, what he's doing. And then Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the Torah has in it a shadow of the good things to come, but not the actual manifestation of the originals. Therefore, it can never, by means of the same sacrifice repeated endless year after year, bring to the goal those who approach the holy place to offer them. Verse 2, Otherwise, wouldn't the offering of those sacrifices have ceased? For if the people performing the service had been cleansed once and for all, they would no longer have sins on their conscience. In other words, sin would not be on their minds. Verse 3, no, it is quite the contrary, and these sacrifices are a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Verse 5, this is why on coming into the world, he says, it has not been your will to have an, an animal sacrifice and a meal offering. Rather, you have prepared for me a body. That's talking about the Messiah's body. Verse 6, no, you have not been pleased with burnt offerings and sin offerings. And I said, look, in the scroll of the book it is written in me, I have come to do your will. And saying first, you neither will nor were pleased with animal sacrifices, meal offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, things which are offered in course with the Torah. And then look, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first system that was based on the, the covenant to keep the commands in order to set up the second. There's two systems. If you have uh, the Levitical priesthood system, and you also have the, the system of, of Melchizedek. Well, I'm talking too much as usual. Let me uh, sign off here. And uh, God willing, I'll be available next week. And we're going to pick up on this and continue on this to help you understand that the priesthood we should be focusing on now is not the Levitical priesthood, but the Melchizedek priesthood that is led by Yeshua as, as high priest. And we're going to also understand that the Levitical priesthood will still be, it is still in effect. It's temporarily not in effect because the temple is not built. But once the temple is built, that Levitical priesthood will be reinstituted again. And I'm going to explain to you why next week. Take care and may God bless and keep you, protect you. Malachi chapter 4. For behold... The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.